Hi, I'm Lorna Meehan, and welcome to Rebel Heroines, a podcast celebrating the rebel heroines of the Greek myths through original audio drama, poetry, book and theatre reviews, and interviews with fellow fans and creatives. In this podcast, the stereotypical and somewhat toxic heroes of the ancient world take a step back as we delve into the stories of the women who shaped their destinies. If you like your Greek myths seen through a feminist lens, enjoy creative adaptations of the classics such as the novels of Natalie Haynes and Madeline Miller, and agree that Hollywood hasn't made a decent movie set in antiquity since the original Clash of the Titans, this is the podcast for you. celebrating the women of Greek mythology through original poetry, audio drama, book and theatre reviews and interviews with fellow fans and creatives. In this podcast, the stereotypical and somewhat toxic heroes of the ancient world take a step back as we delve into the stories of the women who shaped their destinies and champion the female authors bringing these nuanced women to life. Now, I love the heroes of Greek myth too. I mean, what's not to love about Agamemnon turning up back home after 10 years throwing his weight around Troy without actually doing any full-on fighting, I think, and saying to his wife, Hey, Clytie, this is my new mistress, Cassandra, and some kids we had along the way. Show them to the best bedroom when you're done running me a bath. And uh, yeah, that little incident where I slaughtered our daughter so we could sail to Troy. We're all cool about that now, yeah? Sure, hubby, we're cool. Stabby, stabby, stab, stab. Couldn't have happened to a nicer meathead, in my opinion. Hilarious. While we're on the subject, I've just finished reading Clytemnestra by Costanza Cassati, a book which I will be reviewing more deeply when Clytemnestra gets her own episode. But just wanted to say at this point, it's the best exploration of Clytemnestra I've ever read. Very nuanced, well-rounded version of a complex woman that you totally empathise with, though she's by no means perfect. It's one of those books that's the reason I made this podcast. The Greek myths, as rich as they are, are full of women getting raped, beaten, murdered, broken into submission. But because there are so many versions of the same myths, there's room to fill the gaps between with the potential that these pivotal women have, both as individuals and symbols, through the modern lens, through feminist agency. And that's why I've actually put together a list of all the Greek myth retellings I know of written by women and have added the link to the show notes. And feel free to add any that aren't on there that you would like to recommend. 
There's only a few I haven't read yet. And I think it's safe to say nowadays that this branch of historical mythology fiction by women has become a genre in its own right. I think there was an article in The Standard recently about that very thing, how Greek myths have had this resurgence over the years that just seems to be getting bigger. And long may it reign. And uh, I hope to add to this genre myself in the future, but more about that later. Before we get into this episode, I just wanted to do a callback to the previous episode via another new novel I've discovered that's just come out about Perseus, but told from the perspective of his mother, Danae, his wife, Andromeda, and Medusa. It's called Shadow of Perseus by Claire Hayward. I'm excited to read it. I'll let you know how I get on. So, it's a sunny April afternoon. Spring has sprung. And this episode is all about Persephone, the goddess of spring, the queen of the underworld. She's got a lot of potent stuff going on and she's also wrapped up in the myths surrounding her mother, Demeter, goddess of the harvest. So, let's explore Demeter first. Demeter is first generation pulled out of Cronus's mouth by her big bro Zeus and after thrashing the titans with her siblings she takes on the role of goddess of the harvest. She basically takes on the mantle of Gaia and Rhea in terms of being a symbol of Mother Earth. She does get pushed to the side up against the holy trinity of Hera, Athena and Aphrodite but I'd argue she's got the most important job because if these humans don't eat, they starve and then they can't be worshipping no one. Demeter taught humans how to grow stuff and she was considered a generous, bountiful maternal goddess and this role of her as mother is integral to the Persephone myth on a macro as well as micro level because Persephone's fate has a massive impact on mankind, both alive and dead. Ooh, she's got layers. So Persephone is the daughter of Demeter and yeah, him again, Zeus. He rapes Demeter, she also gets the same treatment from her brother Poseidon. So Hades, god of the underworld, is at this point her nicest brother, but not for long. So Persephone, as she blossoms into a young woman, sets all the gods off big time. They're all in lust with her and she's very much an innocent maid, a child of spring. She's like pure Disney princess. So naturally, one of these prancing idiots is going to go ruin it all. But here's a twist. It's actually Hades, who is very much the weak loser of the bunch, who manages to get Persephone by very devious means. Hades is often depicted as the lonely, weedy goth brother to Zeus and Poseidon's chest-beating jocks. And he's got beef with both his brothers because they tricked him into being king of the underworld. He very much drew the short straw and he's got a big chip on his shoulder. 
He sees Persephone from afar and falls in love with her and says to Zeus, I want her. And Zeus being Zeus is like, sure, because he has no respect for women, even his own daughter. So he uses a beautifully scented flower called Narcissus. Yeah, that pretty boy who falls in love with himself. And I'm really into aromatherapy and I got myself some Narcissus oil. And let's just say, if I walked into a thousand Narcissus flowers, I'd be off my face on happy hormones and would probably quite happily hang out in the underworld for a while before the terror set in. It was very cunning of Hades to use these flowers to entice her because wherever Persephone walks, flowers burst out of the ground. Hades opens up the ground and swallows her and this is where Demeter, who up until this point is a pretty benign goddess, gets her big moment. And this is a good point to mention the big themes of this myth for me the fierce bonds of love between mother and daughter, the cycle of womanhood, the deep integral feminine relationship with nature and the nurturing of nature and how that ripples out to empower humanity. It's a big bursting goddess myth. I mean, neither of these two goddesses have it easy, but they are pivotal to life for everyone who lives, gods, mortals and the earth itself. Demeter wanders all through the land in despair looking for her daughter. Zeus feigns ignorance. What a douchebag. Eventually Demeter finds out where her daughter is and begs Zeus to get her back. He of course doesn't get what the big deal is and says no and this is where Demeter displays some of that old school goddess power. She decides to take her earth mother nurture back and the land goes barren. The crops die. It all gets pretty apocalyptic. All Zeus's girlfriends are getting emaciated and ugly and miserable and shit gets real. So Zeus goes to Hades and says, uh, look, dude, you got to give her back. And Hades agrees. But this is where his patient cunning pays off. He gets Persephone to eat six pomegranate seeds. And this is a big cautionary tale. If you ever find yourself visiting the underworld at the Hades Airbnb, don't eat the food. Because Persephone has eaten of the food of the underworld, Hades can lay claim to her and Zeus, in his devious, I just want a quiet life so I can keep shagging way, then decides Persephone will spend half the year with mum up top, half the year with his moody yet now slightly more smug brother down below. And of course, Demeter and her daughter have no choice in the matter, but the main thing is Demeter's got to play ball and give the grain back. So what happens when Demeter's got Persephone time? 
we get spring. We get summer. We get growth, abundance, food. We get wild swimming. We get fresh strawberries and cream. We get beach holidays. We get hay fever, but you know, it's a small price to pay for all that lovely frolicking. But when Hades tugs on those magic pomegranate seeds and claims his bride back, Demeter takes back all her bounty and we get the gradual decline into autumn and winter. We get cold, we get snow, no food, frostbite, white walkers, it all goes to hell when Persephone's in hell. So there you go. This is the Greek myth about why we get the seasons. And there's something really lovely about it, child abduction and mother's anguish aside. And I just want to take us on a little journey to ancient Egypt now, whose myths and culture were a massive influence on the Greeks. And there's a lot of crossovers and similarities with the Egyptian counterpart of Demeter, who is Isis, goddess of magic, fertility, the harvest, basically everything. I love Isis. She's badass. She's like the Beyonce of ancient Egypt. And when her brother Osiris is killed by his jealous brother Set, Isis wanders the land in grief. So she rescues him only to find he must now take on the role of god of the underworld. Egyptians were really into death. They were loving all that death symbology. Life is really just a warm-up for all the epic death drama. So Osiris becomes the pivotal figure for mortals when they cross over after his death. And before that, him and his wife Isis basically taught humans everything from farming to statecraft. They were like the ultimate power couple. And it's interesting that by the time we get to the Greek myths, Demeter's symbolic status is quite different to her Egyptian counterpart in terms of her still having to be subservient to Zeus, despite the importance of her role. And Isis and Demeter both had mystery cults that were very prominent right through to ancient Rome and beyond. And I just want to read you a passage from a great book called Becoming a Garment of Isis by Naomi Azanyek, I think is how you say that. And it's about some of the rituals around the mystery cult of Demeter, where for nine days, initiates would reenact Demeter's search for her daughter. The preparatory stage is marked by rituals of purification, crossing from the mundane sphere of life into the sacred. Within the psycho-spiritual sanctuary, the participants become identified with the central saving figure by entering into the passion and sharing the same journey. In this manner, the central revelation was not an intellectual experience, but an epiphany made meaningful in the charged and shared atmosphere of sacred pilgrimage. So during these pilgrimages, 
There were collective morning rituals, lots of travel on foot. There was celebration. There was offerings of food, sacrifices. There was this sense of communal experience. So in the Demeter Isis cults, and these myths, you've got this real sense of not only honouring the goddess and the changes of the season as a spiritual experience, but you've also got these visible representations of rites of passage and different phases of women's lives. There's so much going on. But that's just what's going on up top. What's Persephone doing down below in Hades? So Persephone for me represents so much more than the innocent who is corrupted. Like Ariadne, she's just a girl who is dragged out of girlhood, but it's what happens next that makes her a real rebel heroine. And let's get into that via a poem. So here is my Persephone poem. Persephone to Hades. What did I really know about the world before you showed me the worm in the apple, the rot under the profusion, the bloody price for survival? Cocooned in enchanted ignorance, wrapped in endless summer, I was a new bird feasting on flowers, eager to fly, to know. Then you, snake, coveting the sun, desperate despite your throne for something that would quicken, burst forth, begin and move. Did you think your damn calls wouldn't change me? That I could teach you joy? No, you never had me. Though you trapped me, and slowly the rule nature always obeys, I took from you. It's me they fear now, these bold fools, these pale lovers with their hearts on fire, these heroes from the ranks of long gone glory. I didn't ask for this potent gift, but I seized it. And you festered in shadows, conflicted by your pride, your perverse love, and I did not care. It's not for me to save you. Thank you for the sting of your wisdom, the wrenching from half into whole. The power to tread between two worlds. The shining goddess of summer. The The dread queen of hell. So Persephone is kidnapped and essentially forced into marriage and must reside in the underworld with her very creepy, lonely husband. And this is where Persephone could just become another footnote. The long-suffering wife of a miserable king who gets no respect and takes it out on her. However, 
In a lot of the myths, after Persephone is entrenched in the underworld, she becomes this prominent figure in the land of the dead. For instance, when Aphrodite wants to hide her new fuckboy Adonis to stop anyone else having him, probably, she takes him to Persephone, maybe foolishly thinking, oh, she's just a nice little girl who will agree to lock him in a room somewhere so I can go play with him whenever I want. However, Persephone falls in love with Adonis too. And when Aphrodite comes to claim him back, what does Persephone say? Bearing in mind, you don't want to piss off Afro because she can make love a real bitch. Persephone says no. I want this hot guy for myself and to be fair, she is more deserving of him. And what can Afro really do up against that considering she's on Persephone's turf? This for me is where we start to see Persephone starting to understand the clout that she has as queen of the underworld. A clout she could argue she wouldn't have had had she remained an innocent maid in this perfect world created by her mother. I'm not saying her abduction and rape was necessary to her gaining her power, but her power is a byproduct that gives her some agency in this otherwise shitty situation. And I think she does have real power because it's interesting that Zeus is the one who is called in to resolve this Adonis dispute. He basically says Adonis has to spend half the year up top with Afro, half in the underworld with Persephone. So all the while Persephone is trapped in the underworld, she gets a super hot guy who is probably the only other person in the world who knows how it feels. She gets to hang out with him. So good for her. But what's Hades thinking? Is he capable of guilt? Has she learned how to navigate him? How to manipulate his feelings? Because Hades doesn't seem to kick up a fuss about Adonis. And Adonis, I suppose, could have a worse fate than servicing two hot goddesses. There's another interesting myth where she turns a beautiful nymph into a mint plant for attempting to seduce Hades. Interesting. You could say that's just another jealous goddess rearing her patriarchal head. Or Persephone playing a very clever game of, see I do love you babe even though you ruined my life, just don't be going after anyone else when I have to stay with you in this hellhole for six months a year because you chose me. I honestly think that by now, in this space where we, the modern audience, can fill in the gaps, that he adores her to such an extent that she can break him with a word. Good for her. She can also grant permission for mortals to go back to the land of the living, as with Sisyphus, the guy who then had to push a rock up a hill forever for tricking her. I reckon she definitely whispered that punishment in Hades' ear. She and Hades are so touched by the fate of Orpheus when he comes to claim his lover Eurydice back from the dead that they give her back to him on the condition he doesn't doubt that she is following behind as he ascends, 
naturally that doesn't turn out well. But it does throw up this image of Persephone and Hades finding common emotional ground. Or is she pulling Hades' obvious fragile loneliness and inferiority complex strings to help these mortals she feels an affinity with? Either way, they've become this power couple. It's an interesting perspective to speculate on that in these myths, Hades seems to still be so smitten with his wife that she can get him to do anything. She remains coveted by others, however, and even foolish mortal heroes risk their immortal souls to enter the underworld and try and steal her. A very satisfying example of some of her husband's cunning rubbing off on her is when she gives Psyche a slave to Aphrodite, who is keeping Psyche from her husband, Aphrodite's son Eros, what she thinks is some of Persephone's beauty in a box, which Aphrodite covets, because, yeah, that grudge over Adonis is still brewing, it turns out to be a box of everlasting slumber. Nice one, Persephone. Giving that little warning to the oldest goddess in the pantheon, Hey, I'm a big girl now, Afro. Get your own beauty box. Another really interesting myth about Persephone is from Orpheism, another mystery cult religion that came out of Greece, where Persephone, by Zeus, is the mother of Dionysus. We know I love Dionysus by now. I always manage to shove him in there somewhere. And what I find fascinating about this myth is that in making Persephone his mother, it throws up how similar they are. They both have the ability to walk between the lands of death, earth and the heavens. Dionysus goes to the underworld and brings Ariadne and his mother in the original myth, Semele, back to Olympus. How did he wangle that with Persephone? Was there a sense of knowing when you've met a kindred spirit? I recommend looking into Orpheism if you're interested in ancient mystery cults because at its crux, it seems to be a lot about discovering your own divinity through the medium of getting drunk and shagging. And there's also some very clear parallels between Orpheism and Catholicism. Back to Persephone resonating with Dionysus. She is spring, life. She is innocence. She is also death, the shadow self, the end of innocence. He is the twice born. He's a great liberator. He brings joy. He also brings anarchy and madness. They both have this affinity with the earth with mother nature, how it can sometimes give, how it can sometimes take away. I think they would have made a potent power couple in a different myth. Which brings me to another story about Dionysus that I'm working on, that I'm going to tell you about in a future episode, in which Persephone features, albeit indirectly, because taking centre stage is my favourite Greek goddess, Ooh, Lorna, who's your favourite goddess, I hear you ask? It's a surprise. And just so you know, it's none of the ones I've mentioned so far. 
So Persephone and Demeter to me are two incredibly important goddesses in the pantheon and in the world of ancient myth and culture because yes they are treated awfully by men and they only have so much power to throw back at them but what power? The power to starve the land, to make the land flourish, the power to decide if you can leave the underworld or if you are damned forever. Don't piss Persephone off because she's only got a whisper in her husband's ear and you're damned, my friend. Between them, Persephone and Demeter literally have power over life and death. And I just want to take this symbology further. I've been on a really interesting journey over the past few years, tapping into the divine feminine, goddess energy, healing my relationship with my sexuality, with my body, with the fallout of my sexual repression and the reclaiming of my sensual self and a massive part of my newfound sense of empowerment around these issues has been influenced by my relationship with these rebel heroines of Greek myth and their counterparts. Persephone and Demeter cover the whole of a woman's life cycle between them. You have the maid, the mother, you have them both growing into crone wisdom. They both acquire this through their relationship with each other, with the environments they inhabit, the volatile men they have to navigate and Also, they touch on the forgotten archetype of the triple goddess tradition, the Enchantress. She comes into play, I think, when Persephone learns how to enchant her captor and through that softens him and maybe even finds something to pity, something to love in him. There are various spiritual feminist modern retellings of this myth that are quite different, where Persephone's birth is consensual because Demeter wants a child, where Persephone feels her mother's love is smothering and falls in love with this romantic outsider version of Hades. And he's all, oh, she's the light to my darkness, man. She goes with Hades of her own free will Demeter demands her back, but Persephone eats the pomegranate seeds knowing it will tie her to the underworld. On one hand, in these versions, I think she has more agency and plays out natural teenage rebellion. On the other hand, I think there's empowerment to be found in the original myth as it is. I don't think Hades needs to be a romantic figure that she redeems. That kind of lets him off too easily. It's all a bit too Twilight, Beauty and the Beast for me to read it that way. And by making him this kind of tragic, romantic, lonely, sexy figure, I don't know, it makes it all about him. What about Persephone? What does she want? And why does she have to be defined by falling in love with someone problematic? I mean, who's to say, when we have the creative means to fill in these gaps, that these symbolic women didn't have more agency in the original myths before they were watered down through patriarchal perspectives? What resonates with me about the original myth is that our lives are cyclic. 
and we can go through trauma that opens us up to the full experience of the world and still get our innocence back but it is a wiser innocence i think every time we come back from our underworlds we have a a new gift and just want to throw in here what could potentially have been the first inkling of the Persephone myth, the myth of Inanna, who is a Mesopotamian goddess who descends into the underworld and comes out changed. Uh, So that's another little throwback to an older version of this myth, where the central goddess has a lot more agency and a lot of shameless sexual potency. Definitely check Anana out. There is a new novel about the Demeter-Persephone myth coming out this month called No Season But Summer by Matilda Lacer, which from the blurb seems to be modernising this myth in terms of looking at climate change, which I think is very interesting and you know quite timely. I'm looking forward to that and will no doubt review it in a future episode. Because the modern relevance of these rebel heroine mother-daughter goddesses for me is that they flag up what we've lost through the dominance of patriarchal structures on the natural world. We very much over the centuries buried the goddess under greed, under logic, under this need to consume and destroy and as a result the world is a mess. We need balance. The earth needs us to give back and stop taking. And there are very real consequences that weren't even an issue when these myths were being created. And stuff in this myth that is eerily relevant to modern times. Mother Earth will bite back. She will find a way to redress the balance and our heavy reliance on the old systems and structures of toxic masculinity, they won't help us, you know? So in that vein, here's a beautiful poem by Carol Ann Duffy from a fantastic poetry collection called The World's Wife. In this book, we get to hear the wife's side of the story from various figures throughout history and culture. There's a lot of Greek myth ones in there, such as Mrs Midas and Eurydice, Medusa, Circe. And then there's also wives like Mrs Lazarus, Mrs Aesop, Mrs Herod. It's a great book. And interestingly, the last poem in the collection is in the voice of Demeter, yet... Whose wife is she? She isn't addressing a particular husband. I was confused at first, then I realised she is the world's wife. She is Earth's wife and she doesn't need a husband to protect her or define her. She protects the Earth and we need to protect her. Here's the poem. Where I lived, winter and hard earth. I sat in my cold stone room, choosing tough words, granite, flint, to break the ice, my broken heart. I tried that, but it skimmed flat over the frozen lake. She came from a long, long way, but I saw her at last, walking my daughter, 
my girl, across the fields, in bare feet, bringing all spring's flowers to her mother's house. I swear the air softened and warmed as she moved, the blue sky smiling, none too soon, with the small shy mouth of a new moon. I just want to end this episode with a book recommendation that might seem a bit left field, but actually ties in very well with all this talk about the divine feminine and natural cycles. So there's a lot of great books around nowadays about how to get more in tune with your menstrual cycle and how it can actually be an integral part of your well-being, your sense of inner power, your creativity and one of the ways you can do this is by seeing its cyclical energies in terms of the seasons. So when your bleed is done, you come into your spring, this state of rebirth, renewal, potential. In the second week, your summer, it's that active period of exploring what you've created by putting it out in the world. Your autumn week is where you start to withdraw more, take stock of what you want to keep, what you want to get rid of. And your winter, like your bleed week, is where you slow down, retreat, honour your energy and let go of everything that no longer serves you. And I think this is a really helpful and empowering way of looking at something that has a lot of baggage around it and yet is so fundamental to the female experience. It's a way of taking power back, I think, to find a way to see your cycle as a gift, a symbol of your divine feminine, rather than this necessary evil, which gives the world this right to see women on their periods as less than, as unreliable, as overtly emotional and irrational. And a book that ties myth and fairy tale archetypes into these ideas is The Red Moon by Miranda Gray. She explores how innocence through adversity grows into wisdom, power, albeit a more feminine, intuitive power. So yeah, it's a bit of a different slant on what the podcast's been talking about so far, but still very relevant, I hope. I just want to finish up this episode with a poem I wrote called Goddess, as it features Persephone, Isis, Inanna, and some other goddesses from the Pantheon, and goddesses in general. And just remember the natural world underneath this modern industrial one and the fruits that you can grow from it. We are the magic cunning of Mother Isis. We are Pele's erupting rage when you take from us that which isn't yours. We are Aphrodite's shameless sexuality, pink and glistening, so bow and ask with reverence. We are Lilith's unblinking, defiant gaze. And well may you fear us for seeing you fully and walking away unimpressed. We are Kuan Yin's gentle, overwhelming compassion, transforming fear into flowers. 
We are the joyful, salacious, hip-swinging, foot-stomp of Oshun, and where we stamp the ground, fountains burst forth. We are the screaming but still dreaming deep red earth of Gaia. The absolute fuck you of Carly in all her creative chaos. And you better run because she doesn't bluff. We are Inanna's fearless descent into death and darkness, emerging from the underworld with our arms full of Persephone's spring, bursting forth with every breath. We are pure love, seething fire and the balancing flood. We are Danu's first spark and last exhale before the whole bloody and beautiful cycle starts again. So know this. Like Hecate, we will fill the sky with crows when you call us to wars we did not start. And we will take aim like Artemis. Unleash our snarling Sekhmet fury. Rain down Shakti's vibrant stars of true power. And hold the new world in our arms. And nurture with Mother Mary love all the damage done. So see us in all our unapologetic glory. No, we are thoroughly done with your fuckery. And we will give you back your half of this world we co-created before you got greedy. When you are sorry and ready and worthy. Thanks so much for listening. I just want to throw in a theatre recommendation. There is a new production of Medea with Sophie Ocanedo at New Theatre Soho Place. And that is on till the 22nd of April. I will aim to get there and give you a review further down the line. In the next episode of Rebel Heroines, we are focusing on Penelope, wife of Odysseus. Feel free to like and subscribe on my YouTube channel. You can find me there on Lorna Meehan or Rebel Heroines Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, send me any pre-recorded poetry or audio drama on theme, please email me at lornaemehan at gmail.com. And please share with anyone who might be interested. And I'll be back next month with more Rebel Heroines.